You're listening to Hidden History, and I'm your host, Ellis Tucci. If you know any way that we can improve our content for you, the listener, drop us a line at hiddenhistory.show forward slash contact. Due to technical difficulties, I wasn't able to put out an episode last week, and next week I'll be on a brief break to celebrate the beginning of spring, so this episode will have to satisfy your hunger for history for just a little bit longer than usual. Alternatively, to catch up on all our past episodes and hear new ones almost every Wednesday, head on over to your Apple Podcast app or hiddenhistory.show and learn something new today. This week's episode is about criminals. But these are no murderers, arsonists, or bank robbers. Rather, their crime is considered by some to be a craft. Before the internet allowed us to quickly and easily verify information, these ambitious individuals could reap massive fortunes. And although most of the famous ones ended up in jail, there are undoubtedly people that have pulled off bigger stunts that we just don't know about, simply because of the fact that they got away with it. This week's episode is as much about criminals as it is about artists. And when an artist's tool isn't a brush or a chisel, but rather an extensive knowledge of the shortcomings of the human psyche, what incredible art it can produce. Yes, this week's episode is about artists. Con artists. This is Hidden History, and you're listening to episode 26, The Monuments Men. Now, given the sheer amount of notable con artists, both historical and still living, I've decided that the best way to go about addressing this very broad topic is to talk about the careers of two con men who operated from the tail end of the 1800s into the beginning of the 1900s. These two men, George Parker and Victor Lustig, were, quite frankly, pioneers in their field. They brought the confidence trick to impressively audacious new heights. By targeting the rich, vain, and stupid, they amassed huge amounts of wealth that they used to make their schemes appear more and more legitimate. And although neither of them ended up getting away with it, Lustig died in Alcatraz while Parker died in Sing Sing, they left an indelible mark on the way that cons function, and what exactly people will fall for. So let's talk about their most audacious cons, and if you would have fallen for any of these, well, let's just say I've got a bridge to sell you. First up is George Parker, who, very fittingly, is the exact reason why we have the expression, I've got a bridge to sell you mainly due to the fact that he successfully sold the Brooklyn Bridge to wealthy, unwitting immigrants. Multiple times. Not a whole lot is known about Parker's early life. We do know that he was born in New York City on March 16, 1860. He had seven siblings, and he graduated high school. Other than that, information is pretty sparse, which is probably just what he would have wanted. So. How exactly did he do it? How did he manage to sell the country's most iconic bridge, not once, but multiple times? And equally as important, why did people believe him? Well, first off, 
in the spirit of fairness, he didn't just sell the Brooklyn Bridge. That was just his most famous property. He also managed to pawn off the Statue of Liberty, uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, President Grant's tomb, Times Square, and the original incarnation of Madison Square Garden. In short, he sold a lot of stuff that wasn't exactly his to sell. How did he do it? Well, it wasn't just a one-man operation. Parker didn't prey on New York's old money families because they would have instantly seen through his scam. Rather, he chose immigrants, fresh off the boat, who would have had no reason not to believe his claims. The graft started before they had even set foot on solid ground. Parker paid scores of captains on the boats that ferried people from Ellis Island to New York to find the wealthiest immigrants, and then subtly began to talk about an incredibly wealthy man that owned property all across the city. Sometimes they'd even pick out what he supposedly owned from the city skyline. Once the passenger became interested, they revealed that they actually knew this incredibly wealthy man, and if the passenger wanted, a meeting could be arranged. And so, fresh off the boat, this new immigrant would meet with supposedly one of the wealthiest people in the city. During these meetings, they'd sometimes walk down the street, giving Parker an opportunity to point out even more of the properties that he supposedly owned. And when he had his mark ready, he would casually mention the bridge. Yes, he owned the Brooklyn Bridge, he would say, but he was thinking of getting rid of it. Sure, it was iconic, but there were a lot of costs associated with it, and even worse, it wasn't making him any money. Now, he simply didn't have the time or energy, or maybe it wouldn't even move the needle for New York's richest man, but if someone bought the Brooklyn Bridge and put tolls on it, that person would become very wealthy indeed. After finding out their budget, Parker took them for all they were worth. His phony real estate office produced extremely convincing forged documents that made it look like, on the surface, everything was above the board. In many cases, the Mark only found out that they'd been scammed when they actually went to install their toll booth, or, in some cases, changed the name of the bridge to reflect the prestige of its new owner. George Parker used the same general method in all of its cons. When he would sell President Grant's tomb, he pretended to be his grandson to gain the trust of his marks. Even though Parker ran a tight ship, that didn't stop the law from catching up with him. Between 1908 and 1928, he was convicted of fraud three times. The first time, he escaped his confinement at the courthouse by simply picking up a sheriff's hat and walking out. You've really got to give him credit for that one. But by the third time, he wasn't so lucky, and he was sent upriver to Sing Sing on a life sentence. After serving time for eight years, he died in prison in 1936. Supposedly, Parker was popular among prisoners and guards alike for telling stories of his incredible adventures selling the monuments of New York. So, what about Victor Lustig? What exactly did he do, and how could it top selling Times Square and the Brooklyn Bridge? Well, Victor Lustig was born Robert Miller on January 4th, 1890, in Austria-Hungary, and he's best known for 
selling the Eiffel Tower. Yeah. But before we can get into that, we should talk about some of his other scams and how he ran them. Lustig got his start by conning wealthy passengers on transatlantic ocean liners. He pretended to be a musician or a Broadway producer, and successfully got funding for a number of fictitious shows. But the start of World War I meant that the large volume of transatlantic passenger travel dried up. He had to find a new market. He found one in the United States. One of the more interesting scams that he pulled here is called the Romanian Box. It was essentially a big trunk-sized mahogany box with a bunch of fake levers and slots that, supposedly, over the course of six hours, could perfectly counterfeit any bill you fed into it. He would load the box with a few real bills acting as counterfeits, and would have them verified at a bank to prove their authenticity. Now armed with proof that the box supposedly worked, he would demand an incredibly high price and leave the mark with a useless block of wood. Lustig was a big fan of counterfeiting scams, and we'll circle back to that in a bit. But first, we have to talk about the Eiffel Tower. So, in 1925, after scamming his way across America, Lustig decided to return home to France, and he sees an article in the newspaper about how the Eiffel Tower is getting increasingly hard and expensive to maintain, and that there are, in fact, a lot of people who want it removed. An idea is born. He reimagines himself as the deputy director general of the Post and Telegraph offices, and contacts a number of companies claiming that the French government is looking to sell the Eiffel Tower for scrap. Of course, given the sensitive nature of the sale and how people might react to losing the tower, the companies could not say a word about this proposal until everything was finalized. Lustig found his target in André Poisson, and in a one-on-one -on -one meeting, casually hinted that being the deputy director of the Post and Telegraph offices maybe didn't pay as well as he had hoped. Say no more. Poisson offered him a bribe. Once the documents were signed and the money changed hands, Lustig fled across the border to Austria. So here's the thing about being scammed. The con man usually counts on it being so embarrassing for the victim that they won't tell anyone what really happened. He was betting on this being the case with André Poisson, and it turns out he was right. Empowered by this news, he returned to France to do it again. This time, though, he wasn't so lucky. His mark contacted the police, and he had to flee back to the United States. Here's where the counterfeiting comes back in. In 1930, he partners up with these two guys in Nebraska, William Watts and Tom Shaw, to do some really large-scale counterfeiting. Watts and Shaw engrave the plates, and Lustig organizes the distribution network for the cash. They put out thousands of dollars per month in counterfeit cash for five straight years, which absolutely caught the attention of the feds. But then in 1935, Lustig's mistress finds out that he was sleeping with Shaw's mistress, 
and so she decides to hand him over. Victor Lustig was arrested in New York on May 10, 1935. On his person, they found a key that opened a subway locker that not only held the engraving plates, but also $51,000 in counterfeit bills. The day before his trial, he escaped by climbing out the window using a homemade rope. I personally don't know if it was made out of bedsheets, but I like to pretend that it was. They caught him 27 days later, and for the initial crime and the escape attempt, he was sentenced to a total of 20 years on Alcatraz Island. On March 9, 1947, he was diagnosed with pneumonia. Two days later, he died at the Medical Center for Federal Prisoners in Springfield, Missouri. The federal government got the last laugh. On his death certificate, his job is listed as apprentice salesman. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. As always, I loved researching and producing it. The music in this week's episode was performed by Esther and, of course, Henry Mancini. Remember that there won't be a new episode next week, but I'll be back on March 20th with a brand new one. Hopefully, that'll help make up for it. Thanks for listening. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off.